We are going to pick up where we left off. I left you with a bit of a cliffhanger last week. I am going to solve part of that problem for you today. But before we do that, I want to just recap because I know we have some that are gone and, and I always like to go back so we can pick up where we left off the previous week. We've been in the series, What Happened to the Power of God? Trying to figure out where did God go? Why did He leave? He's been exited the building. He's kind of like Elvis that some think He's still alive, but they're not really sure that sometimes they see Him. It's like, it's Bigfoot. Right? There are people that believe in Bigfoot and the people claim to have seen him, but we don't really know if he's there. And that really is how God has come out and portrayed today. That, yeah, I believe in a higher power, but we don't know where he is or what he's doing. He has left the building. He's left it for us to fend for ourselves. We, his children. So, good luck to you. And the question comes down to, and we've been talking specifically in the area of healing. And the reason we've been doing that and focus on this for the last several weeks, and we're going to continue on this, is that we need to understand what Scripture says. Because there are three schools of thought. We've talked about this a little bit. The first one is that God does not heal today. Not only does He not heal, that the gifts of the spirits have ceased. That's called cessationism. And they come to this conclusion, if you recall, I showed you four passages of New Testament Scripture that they use to confirm that, that basically... That the idea is, at the completion of the canon of Scripture, that once all the epistles are written and all that stuff, they no longer had a need for those sign gifts, they don't need them anymore, because now we have the Bible. And because we have the Bible, we do not need anything to confirm the Word. You know why? Because we have the Word. You don't need to confirm it. It's not just man's opinion anymore, it's now written down. Now let me ask you a question. Is God's Word what he says, I want to use that clearly because we call this God's word. Is it any more authoritative when it is written down versus when it's spoken? Of course not. Why was it written down? So you and I could know it. You know, we've talked about this and we just got to use logic. And, and, and I bring this up because I had a conversation with a young man Thursday night uh, about a two hour long conversation in an olive garden, as a matter of fact. First of all, they keep bringing you breadsticks no longer how long you stay. That's amazing, all right? But the bottom line was, is he was sitting here telling me that he believes in God and Jesus loves Jesus. He's a born-again believer. He's a brother in the Lord. But this word probably isn't truly the word of God. And the reason he says that, we got on the, the subject of this progressive Christianity is out there. And what they have done is they've undermined the authority of Scripture by saying that the Old Testament really isn't history it's really not a collection of stories there's a moral point behind them but these things happen to people no question but they were portraying god in a way that they can only understand him in their limited ability they weren't as smart as we they didn't have the experience that we have certainly the technology but when jesus came on the scene that was the fulfillment and now we truly understand who god was so all that Old Testament stuff about the killing of the Canaanites and all that other bad stuff that happened, it wasn't really God that was doing that. It was just the way they envisioned it. So therefore, the story of Noah and the ark and the story of Moses and the Ten Commandments and all of that, those are good stories. But they're meant to portray a point. They're not necessarily history. What do we do with that? Because... As you and I both know, and because you guys are all deep into the Word, is we should look at the Old Testament the exact same way the writers of the New Testament did. Right? I mean, when I had somebody say, uh, this was on Facebook one time, we love Facebook, those are always the best place to get your theology, so you know, is a, there was a guy that made a claim that he said, listen, I don't want to be like these modern Christians. I want to have a relationship with God like Abraham had, where I don't need some book to tell me what to do. But I have the Spirit of God 
who will lead me and guide me. Now, that sounds good in, in, in thought. And I said, well, but how do you know that the Spirit of God can lead you? He said, because Jesus said that when He leaves, He's going to send a comforter who will guide us into all truth. Now, here's the question. How do you know that? From the word He's wanting to deny. See, you wouldn't know anything about God if it wasn't for this, right? So now that this is completed, we don't need that stuff anymore. And that may be true, but that doesn't negate the fact that these things still exist. You see, we do have the Word of God that leads us and guides us, and it's what we base our foundation of Christianity on. But to be very, very clear and not to get into the mud is that our basis is not on this book per se. It is on the God who has created everything. It's based off the history and all of that that this book compiles together. So it's not the Bible that we put as our foundation. It is the God of the Bible, and that God has put together a, a word for us that we can read, study, and understand to get to get, know His character. You guys following me so far? So see, the point is, is that we may not need the sign gifts anymore because we have the Scripture. But there's nothing in the Scriptures that say that those are going to go away. You know, when I hand somebody a Bible, can somebody get born again by simply reading a Bible and realizing, oh my goodness, I've been wrong all my life. Absolutely. Happens. Happens all the time. You hear stories about it. Can somebody get saved because they didn't believe in God and then they were supernaturally healed and suddenly it's like, this God is real? Absolutely. Can somebody get saved by having a vision of Jesus? Absolutely. You hear stories about Muslims today going on right now that have a vision of Jesus and realize that they are on the wrong path. And there's a lot of them. And guys, you have to understand this. Is that it's not like you and I just switching allegiances. To them, they are stepping away from everything they've ever known, the entirety of their family. They are shunned. If you become a Christian, you are dead to them. And sometimes you are literally dead to them because they will kill you. So if they're making this stuff up, they're risking everything for it. So why would they do that if it wasn't true? So there are these things happening. And we went and looked at Scripture and said, what does Scripture say on the subject? And I use the verses that they often use out of 1 Corinthians 12 and some of these other ones saying that the gifts ended. And as you can see, as we went through there and looked at the context, that is not what I was talking about at all. So how did we come to this conclusion? Well, what we've done is we've taken our experiences and taken that and created a filter which we read the Bible through. Because I'll be honest, that people that claim to believe in the gifts and operation of the Holy Spirit today... They can be weird sometimes. And they can do things in the name of God that is very clearly not of God. But that doesn't negate the real. It doesn't. So we, do, we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We bring correction. We call people out when they are off. I mean, you guys have heard me say it. I've, I've called out big name ministers when they get off. I don't care who they are. If they're away from Scripture, then we need to let people know. It's our job. So, again... We look at Scripture, we say, okay, here we go. What does it say? According to the Bible, the gifts were never intended to cease. I don't think the writers of the Scriptures at all had any idea that they were writing Scripture when they wrote down. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So the idea that God doesn't heal and doesn't move in those gifts today does not come from Scripture. It comes from seminary. That's where it comes from. Many pastors today are trained in seminaries. There are good seminaries. Dallas Theological Seminary is one of them. Very good seminary. Can teach you a lot of good things. But boy, they get hung up on this one. And you know why? Because people get weird. People get weird. What do you do with somebody who is claiming to have an experience with God that goes against what they think is right? You know who else dealt with that? The Pharisees. 
Because here's the Messiah. He's performing all these miracles. What do we do with this? This goes against what we think should happen. Ah, he's not the Messiah. We'll pay everybody off. That's what they did. So this is easily refuted. Because to make the claim that God does not heal ever is not possible. There aren't a ton of people that would take that hard line stance. Most people come over to this other side. Is that sometimes God does heal. Now the other sign gifts are probably done. They've been done away with. But sometimes God does heal if it is in His sovereign will. And only if. And we began to look at Scripture last week to say, what does it say along this subject? Because we have to know. Does God say that, yes, sometimes I heal and sometimes I don't? Well, we, we've been reading this every, every, every week. It's Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities if He wants to. And He heals all your diseases if He wants to. And He redeems your life from destruction if He wants to. Who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies if He wants to. And who satisfies your mouth with good things if He wants to. And if He felt like doing all of those things, then your youth is renewed like the eagles. That's not what it says. It's not what it says at all. You see, David had an understanding here of who God was, and he says these are his benefits. A benefit is simply a reflection of his character, and he forgives all of our sins. You know what's amazing is we never question God's ability and willingness to forgive sin, but we question everything else. How many people do you know today that are claiming to be walking with the Lord? They're born-again believers and all of that stuff, and yet when you look at their life, it's like, why are you so confident? Because they are for things that God are against. I mean, it just it doesn't make sense. So we have a lot of confidence in God's ability to forgive, but we can't look at it and say, He heals as well. We see these things together very often, put together and seen in the same light. So we have to look at this. Is it sometimes God's will to heal? Sure it is sometimes. It's also all the other times. You see, the thing is, is that is it always God's will to heal? The answer is yes. Does everybody get healed? The answer is no. And we're going to begin to dissect these things and look at them. Now, when we look at the idea that sometimes God's heal, if it's His will, we need to know this question. Is it God's will? Is anything God's will? Remember we read those verses about praying, God, your will be done as it is on earth, on earth as it is in heaven. How do we know what to pray? All of these things that we pray that we do, that if it's God's will, there's, we have to be able to know God's will in order to pray God's will. Because if it, we are praying for something that is against God's will, I would call that a sin. Wouldn't you? Because we're trying to do, we're trying to petition God to do something that is against His will. And if we don't know what His will is, how can we petition God for anything? I told this story recently uh, to some other people, but I had a pastor years ago that told me that God told him to leave his wife and marry one of his members' wives. I don't know about you. I did not need to pray if that was God's will. Right? Because obviously that was not. And you can look at Scripture very clearly in that. But he said God told him to say it. You see, people get into weird stuff all the time. That doesn't negate the real. So here we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. Remember what we talked about. This is Paul talking in verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelation, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, 
A messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecution, in distress. For Christ's sake, when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul just said right here that Satan put a disease on me and it affected me. And I prayed, God, please take this thing away from me. Paul could heal everybody else, but not himself. And so because of that, God's response was, my grace is all you need. Because in my strength is made perfect through your weakness. That means who gets the glory? It would be God, not Paul, right? And what was that disease? What do we know? Well, in Galatians 4, verse 15, it says, And what then was this blessing you enjoyed? For I bear witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. You see, Paul had an eye disease. It was very common back then. Uh, you know, the church in Laodicea, they would sell this eye salve. It was how they made their money. And it was to treat with these diseases. Maybe it was cataracts. I don't know. We just know that he had a hard time seeing. If you look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 11, he says, you see what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. Why do people write in large letters? Because they can't see the small ones. Have you guys ever seen Yoli's Bible? You can't. It's too small. Yoli, do you have that? She didn't. You didn't bring your Bible to church? Oh, okay. She's moving up. There you go. That print is so small that you need a telescope to read it. It, it. Don't listen to her. She doesn't know. We've all seen it. I have confirmation, okay? Out of the mouth of two or three witnesses. You're out. You see, he had to write in large letters because he had this eye disease and that was the thorn and it was given to him by God because that was God's will. It was his sovereign will to keep Paul humble. And Paul didn't want it. Would you want it? I don't want it. I like to be able to see. Do you like to be able to see? I'm a big fan of seeing. Seeing is better. You ever driven without seeing? Doesn't go very well. Right? So we need to be able to see. But that's okay, Paul. My grace is sufficient for you. And you all know that I am setting this up very, very hypothetically here. You see, why did they come to that conclusion? Well, let's look at it. We pray for people that aren't healed. So the only assumption that we can have when we see that God says that we lay hands on the sick and they recover, He must mean only if it's His will. And sometimes He does it, sometimes He doesn't. So we don't know. But what we do know is the fact that we don't see healing happening today, that it's either ended completely or it's got to be in God's will. And in this case, it wasn't God's will for Him to be healed because other people were healed. So God has allowed this to be for His sovereign goodness. You guys see that? What we've done is we've taken our experience and what we see in the world and we've now added that to Scripture and we've come to a conclusion because I can guarantee you today when you leave here, you will never question again, did Paul have an eye disease? You'll also never question again what the thorn is. And I'm going to show you how we do this. This is very easy. It's called exegesis. I don't have to come up with some brilliant thing. I am not that smart of a person. If you spend too much time with me, you realize I grew up in Auburn, Nebraska. Okay? Like, it's pretty obvious. I went to public school. I mean, it's just pretty obvious. Poor Diana has to interpret my handwriting once in a while. Right? What do you have to do? You call me. What the heck did you just write? That's what she does. I can't read this. So, this is very easy, guys. All we have to do is get rid of our preconceived notions. Let's just go to the Word. Let's start in Acts chapter 14. Now, it happened in Iconium 
that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews, and so spoke to that great multitude, both of the Jews and the Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So what are we seeing here? We are in Iconium. I'll show you a map here in just a minute. But what? this is Paul. Paul, you remember, Acts chapter 9, what happened? Paul has this vision. Jesus appears to him. Once you get out of chapter 9, you're starting to get into the works of Paul and less about the works of Peter. And so he goes out and he is preaching. And what he did in every city that he went to is he went to the synagogue of the Jews, which is basically their church, okay, for lack of a better term. And the Jews, a great multitude of the Jews and the Greeks, they all believed. But who went against him? The unbelieving Jews. Unbelieving in what? They believed in God. They did not believe in the Messiah. So what did they do? They stirred up the Gentiles and they poisoned their minds against the brethren. Now, there's a major Gentile population in this area. And I'll show you that here in a minute. So, but what did they do? Did they run? Did they leave? No. They stayed there a long time and they spoke boldly in the Lord who was bearing witness with this word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. What were the signs and wonders? It doesn't tell us. But all the other time you see diseases healed. Lame walk, the deaf hear, the mute speak. You see um, uh, demons cast out. I mean, you see all of this stuff that are going on. These are the signs and wonders that happen in every other part. So we assume it is much of the same. Verse 4, But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers uh, to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and the surrounding regions, and they were preaching the gospel there. Now, I think I've got a map. Do I have a map up there? I do. Look at that. I don't have my, my partner. I don't know what I did with it. Anyway, my, my two-year-old tends to steal that thing. And, and then, you know how you do it with a cat and you shine the light and they chase it? Well, a two-year-old does that too. And then if he gets in control of it, he really never catches it. I don't think he's caught on to that yet. But anyway, as you can see up here, we're up in this area here. This is Paul's first missionary journey. You can see the pattern that he took, and then he makes his way back. We're up in here. You see Lystra, the Iconium area, Lyconia, all of that. So he was up there in Iconium. He was preaching the gospel. And the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, came against him, and they're creating an uproar, and they're trying to get rid of him. And so he heads south to Lystra. Now, this is a modern-day uh, Turkey. It's in this area right here. So it is a city that was very friendly to Rome and was honored by Claudius, who was the emperor, shortly before Paul got there. Now remember that the emperor were people who were worshipped. They worshipped them as gods. They saw them as gods. They would make coins of them and saying that they were gods. They were called the sons of God. Iconium was situated right on this major trade route, which is why there is so much Gentile population in this area, because it links Syria and also Ephesus, were two major cities, and they would come together. And this was kind of a middle point where they would cross. And so it was very big on agriculture and all of that other kind of stuff. It had money. It was prosperous. It was growing. Those are all good things. But they worship a lot of the Greek gods, Cybele. Hercules, Zeus, all of these guys, also known as Jupiter and Maximus, and they also worshipped Apollo, all of these Greek gods because of the major Greek influence there. You remember, it says the Jews and of the Greeks believe. 
Now, from Luke's writing, we know that there was also a Jewish community here. Remember, Luke wrote Acts because they went to a synagogue that was in the city. Now, there are all sorts of inscriptions here when you study the archaeology of this area, the fact that Christianity eventually becomes extremely deep-rooted in this area. And we are watching the beginning of this happening in Acts chapter 14. So, it had a Jewish community there, but it was primarily Gentile. And they think that Paul stayed in Iconium for about six months. They don't really know exactly how long, but they think it was right there. So, he is up there in Iconium, he heads down to Lystra, and the first thing he does, starts preaching the gospel. That's what he does. It's about 20 miles south. Uh, Augustus, Caesar Augustus, set this up in 26 B.C. So this is about 26 years before Christ is on the scene. Hadn't been there that long. So, a major, major area. This is, this is important that we understand and we follow this, okay? Now, let's go to verse 8. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. Now remember, one of the miracles that Jesus performed, confirming that he was the Messiah, was healing a man born blind. From birth, he had that upon him. Because only God could do that. Alright? So, from the time he was born, he had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking, Paul observing him intently, and seeing that he had faith to be healed, he said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped up and walked. You know what Paul didn't do there? He did not ask God, is it your will? You see, he looks at the guy and said, this guy's believing. He had faith in God as a result of the preaching of the Word, because he's preaching the Gospel here. And so, he just looks at him. He says, stand up. And so he did. What do we do with that? Oh, we just happened. Paul got lucky. That's what it was. This time, he rolled the dice. He threw it out there. And he says, stand up. And the guy did. Whew. That's probably why Luke wrote that one down. He didn't write down all the other times. It didn't work. Verse 11, now, when the people saw that what Paul had done, they raised their voices saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. So what is the result of this sign and wonder? They're going to worship Paul and Barnabas. Now you're going to see that Paul is not going to like this. Now, there was a legend in this area, and this is why. This is kind of background stuff that you don't necessarily get, but Jupiter, who was a, the Roman name, and Zeus was the Greek name, was the fathers of the God. He was very tall. He was a dignified guy. Mercury is the Roman name. Hermes is the Greek name. Same guy. Okay? They said he had winged feet. He was the messenger of Jupiter. So he was his spokesman. So they were both there, but he would speak on his behalf. And so the legend is this, that those two came down, and it went to the Phrygian hill country, which is right in that area. And they disguised themselves as mortals, and they're looking for a place to stay. Is there anybody friendly that will bring us in? And they asked thousands of homes, and nobody would take them in. And so finally, they get over to this cottage, this old couple who didn't have a whole lot. Um, it was just made of straw and reeds and all this other stuff. They were, they were kind of old. Their name was Philemon and Bacchus. Okay? B-A-U-C-I-S. I'm, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right. But... 
They took them in and they freely welcomed them. They, you know, they took what little they had and they prepared a, a banquet for them. And so because of that, out of the appreciation, these two gods transformed this humble cottage into this great temple and it had a golden roof and marble columns and they made these two as priests and priestess over the temple. So instead of dying, they became, when they, when they sort of died, they became an oak tree and a linden tree. And so all the inhospitable people that didn't take them in, they destroyed their houses. Now, that's the backdrop of what happened. So what do they see? A miracle has been performed that no mere man can do. Therefore, it must be that Jupiter and Mercury, Zeus and Hermes, has returned to us. You guys see why they reacted that way. They're worshiping these things. They know this legend. That is what's going on. Now, look at verse 14. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? Now, why did they tear their clothes? Why is this a big deal? Well, whenever they tore their clothes, they would rent their clothes as a sign of anguish, as a sign of this is bad. You would see the high priest do this whenever something would put themselves in sackcloth and ashes. But not too many uh, chapters before this, there was a guy named Herod, and he stood up to be worshipped. And the angel of the Lord struck him down and said, worms ate his body. Paul knew this story. You don't take the worship that belongs to God. Without getting on too far of a side trail, remember one of the things that Lucifer, which is not a name but with a title, was doing was receiving the worship that rightly belonged to God. That's how the, the Hebrew reads in that. So he says, men, why are you doing these things? We are also are men of the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all the things that are in them. Now, again, why is he saying this? Because they had counter gods that took care of all of these things. He's saying, you're worshiping these false gods, these false idols, and you claim that they have done that. Come to the living God who did, actually did all of these things. Verse 16, who in bygone generations allowed nations to walk in their own ways. Now this is going back to a Deuteronomy 32 passage. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness and that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. What's happening? They're up there preaching. Guys, cut it out. It is the living God that has done this. And who's not listening? The people. Not listening at all. They can barely do this, deal with this. They can't get these people to stop. Verse 19. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there. So where are they at? They're in Lystra. And having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up, and he went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. Now, can you put that map back up real quick? You can see Derby. It's just over to the right. So they've stoned Paul. They thought he was dead. The disciples come around and the followers of Christ show up. Paul gets up and immediately heads off to Derby. And as you can see from the arrows, okay, now this is exactly how Paul mapped it out. We have his maps. That's how we know this. That's a joke, guys. Okay, that's a tough crowd. Anyway, so he turns around and he makes his way back from there. 
So he just got stoned, he gets out. Verse 21, And when they had preached the gospel in that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church they, and prayed with fasting, they commanded them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And after they had passed through Poseidon, uh, they came to Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Now, we see the story that took place in Acts chapter 14. Now let's put this map back up. Since I don't have my pointer, I'm going to walk up here. I'm going to try to not get in the way. Remember what we read in Galatians. Like you would have through my infirmities, you would have plucked out your own eyes. There's one thing I didn't point out. Do you happen to notice where they're at? Who is the book of Galatians written to? The Galatians, the people of Galatia. What happened before he went? When he left Lystra, he goes to Derby. he turns around, and he makes his way back up to Iconium, back over to Antioch, all in Galatia. He had just been stoned. If you don't know how stoning works, they don't throw them at your feet. They throw them at your head because that's how they kill you. You see, he had been pummeled with rocks. He was probably beat up, bloodied, bruised, swollen, hardly recognizable. They left him for dead. I'm going to tell you this. I think he was actually dead. Remember, these guys dealt with death all the time. They knew it when they recognized it. They also do not stop until they know you are dead. Now, there's later that Paul talks about, whether I was in the third heaven, I do not know, in my body, out of the body, I do not know. I believe personally that he had died there and was raised. Now, I can't necessarily prove that directly because it doesn't say that, but based on the pattern, they could have screwed up, but they hated Paul so much, I'm pretty sure when he was laying there lifeless, they hurled a few more rocks at him. They drug his body out. He rises up. Now, let's read Galatians chapter 4 again. Verse 12, Brethren, I urge you to become like me. I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. Why did he go there? He left there because he'd been stoned. At my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? You know what he says here? He says, I urge you to become like me because I became like you. You didn't injure me. You know that because of my physical infirmity, writing to the church of Galatia, where he sets up these churches. What physical infirmity are we talking about? He had been stoned. Because of the physical infirmity that I preached to the gospel at the first, and my trial, which was in my flesh, he was dealing with, you didn't despise or reject. You didn't look at me as an outcast. You didn't say, oh my goodness, that guy's ugly, kind of like when Shrek shows up or whatever. He didn't, none of that stuff. But you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ himself. So what blessing did you enjoy? I bear you witness that if possible, you'd have plucked your eyes out. What happened? That is not the thorn in the flesh. It has nothing to do with that, does it? You see, 
in context, the book of Galatians is Act 14. There's a very good chance that the church that this letter was written to was in Derby, was in Lystra, was in Antioch, any of those places, because they're in Galatians. You guys see that? What did we just do? We performed an exercise. We went and allowed Scripture to interpret Scripture. We took an event that took place, and we look at where you were at, and then we match it up with the letter that he wrote. You see, he didn't have an eye disease when he showed up to the Galatians. He had been stoned. That hurts. If you would like, there's any volunteers, we can demonstrate this. Okay? Okay, no takers. In Galatians 6, verse 11, you see with what large letters I have written you with my own hand. This isn't talking about the size of the letters. It is talking about all the letters that he's written, that he writes a lot. You guys see how that doesn't line up? It just doesn't make sense. It is easily uh, refuted that this has to do with 2 Corinthians 12. But you know what that doesn't do for us? It doesn't tell us what the thorn was. Now, we can sit here and prove what it was not. It certainly wasn't some eye disease. But let's look at 2 Corinthians 12 again. Verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelation, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecution, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, we look at that last part, and he says, Yeah, he took these in because, you know, it was God's will for him and all of that. You add that to Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Has nothing to do with Paul's golf game. It has everything to do with the fact that he's been beaten, he's been in prison, he's dealt with all of this, and yet I can do any of it because it's God who gives me my strength. So going back here, it says, now let's look at this, all right? A thorn in the flesh was given to me, and look what it does. It defines it. It was a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Now, what does that mean? Well, let me tell you this. I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. This says nothing about some physical infirmity. Do you know some of the things? They said that he had gout, that he was hunchback, that he was blind, or he had cataracts. Or all. There's all these things they've come through through this verse. But doesn't it say that it was a messenger of Satan? What is a messenger? It's an angel. So where did we come up with this idea that it was some sort of sickness? Well, it says his infirmities. What infirmities is he always talking about? It's the beatings that he took, not the sickness. His body was beaten in the same way that Jesus was. It was an example. It was that, that he knew he would have to take that on. He knew the calling of God on his life. So what is a messenger of Satan? Well, let's look at this for a minute. We know that the term messenger also means angelos. It's the Greek word that's used there. It's an angel. This would be a fallen angel. It was something not given by God, but, but brought by the enemy. Because obviously Satan wants to thwart uh, Paul's plans here, what he's trying to do. So what is a thorn in the flesh? And are there any other examples in Scripture that we can look at to define this? Well, there are all sorts of them. Let me give you a few. Numbers chapter 33, verse 54, But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. 
What are we talking about here? The promised land, that they were to dwell out the inhabitants. Now, these are the uh, Nephilim that were there, these tribes of giants. They were to drive them out and push them. And if you didn't, what would they be? A thorn in your flesh. These were the enemies of God that were going to be constantly pricking at you. Constantly. They may not kill you, but they were going to be a constant thorn in your side. Look at Ezekiel chapter 28. And there shall no longer be a pricking barrier or a painful thorn for the house of Israel from among all who are around them who despise them. Then they shall know that I am the Lord God. What is that thorn referencing? The enemies of God that has surrounded the nation of Israel. Let me show you one more. Joshua chapter 23, verse 13. Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps to use, and scourges on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. This is Joshua's kind of farewell warning here. But what do we see that this thorn is every time that it is used in Scripture? It is the enemy of God. Now, what did Jesus say to the Pharisees? You are of your father, the devil. So who is it that is possibly these thorns? Well, who followed him down to Lystra? It was the unbelieving Jews every single time. See, these people were brought down to thwart what he was trying to do. I fully believe that the thorn in the flesh was not a physical infirmity, but it was these unbelieving Jews that he constantly had to encounter, and he encountered them often. How did I come to that conclusion? I allowed Scripture to interpret Scripture. You see, in order for us to pray God's will, that when it says that believers lay hands on the sick and they recover, that it says in James that you call for the elders of the church and that the prayer of faith will make them whole. We have to have a confident expectation in the God that we are petitioning. Remember what I said a couple of weeks ago, that you almost stoned me in that moment, that I don't believe in the power of prayer, and I don't believe in the power of healing. I believe in the power of God, and the prayer is the petitioning of that God, and the laying on of hands for healing is the obedience on our part that God moves in their lives. So when we look at this, Paul knew exactly what was going on. This passage that is used to show that sometimes it's not God's will to heal, is that what it's talking about? It is not. It's not even close. But we have more than that, don't we? In 2 Timothy chapter 4, we read this last week, verse 19, greet Prisca and Aquila in the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth, but Trophimus I have left in my lead is sick. You see, Paul no longer had the ability to heal, did he? That's why he left in there sick that that gift had left him. And then you got in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Why did Paul not just pray for him? Why didn't he just say, hey, the power of God's in you. Why don't you heal yourself? Why'd you just need to drink a little wine? I mean, if you drink enough wine, you may forget you're sick. That was a joke. Thanks for playing along. You see, Paul obviously had the ability but lost it, right? Well, again, these are easily explainable. And I'll explain them next week. Okay? I'm also going to show you another passage out of the book of Daniel that is often used about God's will. And it's often used incorrect. The bottom line is, guys, is this. 
is that we are to be obedient to the Word of God. There's no question about that. And if it says that you call for the elders of the church and they lay hands on you and the prayer of faith will make you well, you can't do that if you don't know if it's God's will to make you well. We can't as believers go lay hands on the sick with a confident expectation they'll recover if we don't know if it's God's will. See, this all has to do with the will of God. Is God sovereign above us that He is just sitting down there He's like, yep, I'll heal you, but not you. I like you. You're pretty alright. You get on my nerves. No, I can't do that one. Oh, you went to Oklahoma University. Sorry, you're on your own, buddy. Good luck to you. You know, I mean, do it. put it this way. When we go and we share the Gospel with somebody, do we have any doubt that it is God's will to save that person? No, or we wouldn't do it, Right? We, we're not going to use the, the Calvinistic logic that, well, if they get saved, it must have been God's will, and if they didn't get saved, it must not have been God's will. That's circular reasoning. That's, that's just ludicrous. We're going to go in there confidently saying, you know what, I'm going to share the gospel. And they may receive it, and they may not, but I'm going to share it because that's my responsibility. It's not my responsibility to convince them. We have to have that same attitude when it comes to healing. And that's why we're doing this. That's why we're going through these scriptures and we're going through them carefully and we're going through them slowly because we're not going to rush through this. Because guys, part of the Great Commission is that we go into all the world and preach the gospel. And those who believe will do those things in Mark 16, that we will lay hands on the sick and recover. We need to know, is it God's will to heal all? So come back next week, you'll hear the rest of this.